you have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. episode, John is joined by Caleb Scharf. Caleb Scharf was born and educated in England. He received his BSc in Physics from Durham University and his PhD in Astronomy from the University of Cambridge. Following postdoctoral work in X-ray astronomy and observational cosmology at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the Space Telescope Science Institute in Maryland, he has been a research scientist at Columbia University in New York. He's currently the director of the multidisciplinary Columbia Astrobiology Center. His research interests include the study of exoplanets, exomoons, and the nature of environments suitable for life. Dr. Caleb Scharf, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Now, doctor, you have recently authored another book, and this one is of an interesting topic, something that, that not well tackled, I would say. Ascent of information, and essentially, you go into the the idea of humanity and alien civilizations or anyone building a huge mountain of information, a huge mountain of data. So we go from prehistoric times where everybody's talking about folk tales and passing them on from generation to generation to this enormous absolutely enormous amount of data that we have now and this almost hallmarks civilizations that data is ultimately what we are could you give us an overview of why why is this why why did you write that book <laughs> well it's a great question the actually the origins of the book came from thinking about life in the universe and in particular thinking about the nature of intelligence and technology and what that really means, what the sort of signature qualities of that kind of life uh, are. And what I honed in on is this observation about ourselves that we do something that is genuinely unique amongst all other species on the planet. And that is we generate and utilize and propagate all of this information that is not encoded in our DNA. It's not stuff that we can inherit directly biologically from one another. It's stuff that we build into the world around us. And it's in our stories, it's in our symbolic representations, it's in our books, it's in our drawings, it's in our uh, images, it's in the sculptures we make, it's in the electronic bits that we, we generate at an astonishing uh, rate at the moment. and. That struck me as a marker or some kind of marker of intelligent or technological life. And so I started looking into that and thinking more and more about it. And as part of that, I had to give it a name, this externalized information. And so I've ended up calling it the data ohm, a bit like a genome, a microbiome, it's sort of the entirety of this, this externalized information. And that externalized information is a restructuring of matter. You know, we, when we produce a book, that's a restructuring of matter. When we, we put 
um, data into a silicon chip. Well, the chip itself is a restructuring of matter and, and the electronic charges we place into it are also that. So it led me deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of thinking about the nature of information, the impact that constructing informational matter or matter containing information, the impact that has on a planetary environment, and therefore the kind of signatures that might be exhibited by a planet undergoing this kind of externalization of information. Uh, but also, what does it really mean about us? And just to give you one example of where I land with this, I make the somewhat outrageous proposal that that externalized information, that data ohm, is best thought of as an alternate living system here on Earth. And it's in symbiosis with us. It came out of us, but now it is in symbiosis with us. And that really does make us quite unusual and special on Earth, which is interesting. You know, we tend not to want to think that we're special particularly, but in this case, I think we have to say we are. And once you allow that symbiosis, that data ohm human symbiosis, then you have a tool not only to examine our own current circumstances, but to project not only into the future, but also what might happen elsewhere in the universe. Now, data ohm, this, this new term that you coined in the book, data ohm, as mimicking genome maybe the fingerprint well it has to be the fingerprint of any advanced civilization in the universe right so data is what we collect and ultimately it is our legacy do you think it's possible that within seti that we might look out into the uh the galaxy and find radio signals and those radio signals if we can if we can decipher them are the data ohms of alien civilizations telling us what they learned. Maybe they're extinct and they're telling us what they learned. Yeah, I think that's certainly one possibility. And there's an interesting aspect to this concept of the data ohm that in our quest to look for life elsewhere in the universe, in astrobiology, for example, we spend a lot of time thinking about so-called biosignatures. So looking for the impact of biological life on its environment, changing the chemistry of a planet's atmosphere and so on. Ultimately, though, what we're doing with biosignatures is we're trying to probe the genome, assuming something like that exists for other forms of biological life. We're trying to probe the genome. So biosignatures map to a genome, potentially an alien genome. And I would suggest that other kinds of technological signatures such as you might get with SETI, so-called technosignatures, are actually the equivalent probe of the data ohm that could exist on these other worlds. And yeah, you raise a really interesting point, which is, can you have a data ohm without its biological originator or its biological counterpart? And I, I don't know quite what the answer to that is. I suspect that one option is that there are going to be varying degrees of biology plus data ohm. What I mean is that you might have a data ohm heavy planet with a little bit of the biological originators still around to provide certain things for that, but you, know, you may have other situations where it's more equally balanced. But 
the really fascinating thing, if I can leap off in this direction, is that a data ohm, an informational, externalized informational thing, can be transmitted in the universe at the speed of light, unlike biological life. And in that sense, it could be that the thing that gets exchanged between species are their data ohms rather than themselves. In exchanging data ohms, so this could conceivably be the most valuable thing a civilization has. In other words, their entire history, their data ohm. And it would seem that if you're going extinct, you would send that out as a techno signature or more accurately a necro signature. And that we might in SETI find nothing but records of extinct alien civilizations <laughs> as opposed to as, as opposed to actual living extant civilizations, right? That would be one possibility. And I might even say that the the way I conceive of the data ohm is that it is a dynamic thing. So when I say that it's conceivably an alternate living system, I'm being quite serious. But it has different qualities in biological life. We know that you know, information can sort of sit there unattended for a while. And then when it's interacted with again, it sort of comes back to life. And in that sense, your know, data ohms, yes, they would be sort of the echo of perhaps extinct biological species, but they could also be their own thing. And I wonder whether a data ohm, an alien data ohm, could actually infect a new world. Suppose we downloaded the entirety of another now extinct civilization's data ohm. We're not just going to have it sit there inert on our disk drives. We're going to start interacting with it. And so suddenly we can create the same symbiosis with that data ohm that we have with our own. Where that leads us, I don't know. It could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Now, the universe itself seems to be in, in, in some ways, a data storage device. In other words, the universe is recording its own history. And this is time, causality. And you can reconstruct what happened in the past in a, in a physics sense by, by looking at what you can look at. Of course, Heisenberg uncertainty principle and all that. But you can kind of get some sort of a feel of what led to what's happening now. So do you view the universe itself as a data ohm? <laughs> well, strictly speaking, the way I think of the data ohm is that it at least begins as this, this offshoot of some other kind of life, let's say biological life, that begins to externalize the information that has meaning for it. And actually, the, the question of the meaning in information is a really big one. And a lot of people, the frontiers of information theory and thermodynamics thinking about this. And you know, we talk about semantic information and we talk about syntactic information. So syntactic information is kind of the boring stuff. It's just you know, how compressible is a chunk of data and we don't really care what, what is contained in that data. Semantic information is about knowledge. And I think the data ohm's power lies in its semantic information, in its sort of actionable information for example, for a biological species. And that means something for our survival. So the universe, it's a little trickier. I, you know, for me, the extraordinary and deep puzzle that I don't think we have a good answer for in any way is how a universe that 
begins 13.8 billion years ago in a state of comparatively low entropy in the strict sense of that word, and really without information. Yet it's bootstrapped itself into a condition where not only does it contain uh, syntactic information, it now contains semantic information because it's also produced entities, restructurings of matter that utilize information from around them. They sense the universe around them. That to me blows my mind. <laughs> I don't know the answer to how and why that happens, but it's part of sort of frontier of research in this area of information theory, the origins of life, the trajectories that, that species take through time. It's trying to understand that. But just if I can add one other thing to that, you know, we we have hints from physics that information is something fundamental that we do talk about but we haven't talked about in the way that you know we don't teach it in high school right but we teach people in high school about energy and what is energy energy just is an abstract concept right energy just is a quality of the world that means stuff can happen information's sort of like that it's it's a similar kind of thing in fact it was the the physicist john wheeler um puzzling over quantum physics and the nature of uncertainty, the nature of you know, how observation influences the outcomes of experiments and so on, actually coined this, this beautiful phrase, you know, it from bit, suggesting that actually maybe at a really deep level, the nature of reality is all about information. And it's about observation, it's about the interaction of things with other things producing information sort of out of nothing that all that we know of, of uh, physical reality comes ultimately from information wheeler was interesting wheeler <laughs> came up with all sorts of interesting ideas including the idea of there being only one electron moving back and forth through time definitely definitely a a a, a <laughs> an out-of-the-box thinker now let me ask you this okay on the theme of the universe being an energy storage device itself, also DNA is, meaning that a very reliable way to store information is through DNA chemistry, meaning that we contain information from species long extinct within our DNA that we're, we're related to. So nature seems to really like information storage. Another example would be um, would be sort of the idea that that even even the speed of light, the speed of light is essentially the speed at which information can propagate throughout the universe. So we see these things in the universe itself that seem to suggest, I guess, if you if you could put it that way, that it likes to store information. In. It's like a big hard drive. So when we store information within human civilization, we're simply mim mimicking nature, right? Absolutely. And mentioned DNA. The interesting thing is that if you, if you look at the nature of life at biological life, as we understand it, it at its core is informational, uh, you know, our DNA, absolutely it's information storage, but it's a very special kind of information storage because DNA molecule 
is not just an inert storage system. It's a reactive storage system. So the nature of the, the base pair sequences along a strand of DNA also say things about how that, that molecule itself behaves in the world, how it twists and turns, how it vibrates, what parts of it are more likely to interact with amino acids and, and other components of, of cells and, and output that information into things like protein. It's a very, very complex informational system that's sort of special. It's not like our silicon chips in that respect. Our silicon chips are much more inert. You know, we just put our information there and then retrieve it. They don't restructure themselves when we do that particularly, whereas biology does. And so this is the beautiful thing about information is that you can begin to see a continuum from even from the early universe all the way through certainly to life here on Earth. Whatever the origins of life were, they involved this um, storage of information, this persistence of molecular sequences, molecular structures through time that could then build on themselves, interact with other structures, which in turn would create new structures and so on. And that means that the jump to, for example, the data ohm, which I've characterized as this externalized information, our hard drives, our books, our buildings, whatever, it's not so much. It's not really such a big thing. I mean, it, it's important and it's given us as a species an extraordinary advantage on Earth. But it's part of this, I would argue, part of this continuum. It's just a new way, if you will, that information is found to expand itself, to take more of the universe and structure it in a certain way, which is pretty amazing. And if that is a truly deep principle that's at play, that must be happening elsewhere in the universe. That must be true pretty much everywhere in the cosmos. Now, would it be fair to characterize abiogenesis as the moment at which chemistry can begin to preserve complex information in the form of DNA? So can we say that abiogenesis is the point at which not only life begins, but information storage in this manner begins. I think that's a really important piece of it. You know, this is a controversial subject, how life gets going and abiogenesis, the origins of life. And some people will argue that a an even more important part is to do with energy transduction, to do with how free energy is extracted from the environment. But of course, that does go hand in hand with persistent structures, persistent molecular structures, which, as you say, informational, perhaps even more so, it's the capacity to process information that may discriminate life from non-life. That may be part of that transition from what we would consider to be not life to life. In fact, some people would say, and I'm one of those and some other scientists working in this area would say that you know, the big picture here is that life is when information takes control of matter. And that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> I mean, that's saying huge, that... huge statement. <laughs> it's saying that, and you know, to dig a little deeper into that, it means that the, the sort of channels information flows through in the world also undergo some kind of restructuring 
that transition from not life to life. There's something that happens in the networks of the transmission of information, you know, it could be as simple as there's a chemical gradient somewhere. And because there's a chemical gradient over in one place, then there's some reaction to that somewhere else in some other molecules. But that ostensibly is a transmission of information, but it's when it gets to a point where that sense, sensory reaction results in something new happening and that something new reaches back and kind of changes the world in return. That's you know, where information takes control of, of matter. And I think that's a really fascinating way of looking at this, looking at abiogenesis. That sort of steps outside of the messy details of terrestrial biology, which are important to understand, but this sort of further abstraction, or you will, if you will, seems to point towards maybe some deeper principles. And that gets really exciting for thinking about life elsewhere in the universe. So whenever you get up and go out to your car and you look at your car and you can actually say that is information taking over the control of matter. So <laughs> everything we do, you know, around us, the, the donut we eat in the morning and all that is, is our own collective information as a species controlling matter i would argue yes and it's and you know it's i mean it's mind-blowing to think of it that way but it, the more you do analyze that the more sense it makes and just to give another example i can take a sheet of paper and i can write out some some words on it i can put down symbols representing information that means something to me but that sheet of paper will not crumple itself up or fold itself origami style into something and then walk off. But in biology, in life, that is exactly what happens. <laughs> a sequence of molecules, a sequence of information somehow written into DNA or whatever system you're thinking of kind of crinkles itself up, up and walks off. And it's the information enabling that. It's, it's the algorithms, it's the processes that that information has now imprinted on matter. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's quite a mind-blowing way to think about the world. Now, time itself, as, as a record, could time itself be a universal datum? Meaning that, is it a record of everything that happened in the universe, alien or human? And nature. <laughs> wow, that's quite a deep question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know. So there are there are questions about. So, for example, you know, the universe as we know it has its limits. Right? We talk about the observable universe in cosmology, the universe from which light has had time to reach us, from which there's a sort of causal connection. It gets a little more complicated because of the expansion of the universe and what will happen in the future and so on. Some of that causal linkage actually sort of weakens in the kind of universe we live in that seems to be expanding faster and faster. Um, but that means that in principle, the, the universe that any entity or any matter can have causal connection to is finite, at least for the time being. And that means that there's a finite number of bits, if you will, that can be flipped one way or the other. 
And so there are all sorts of interesting questions that raises about, you know, suppose you know, the universe is recording itself somehow. It's probably going to have to continually overwrite some of its storage space because, you know, let's say I take the universe and I have half the universe on one side and the other half of the universe I use to store all the information from the other half. Now, maybe I can compress that a little bit. I use some universal compression algorithm, you know, a JPEG algorithm for, for reality. Um, but at some point, maybe I'm going to run out of space and I can no longer actually store the information from the other half of the universe. What I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, it's quite hard to have a system that has its information, but also somehow stores its own information if you see what I mean, there's a limit to the number of bits that you can flip. And there are also arguments to do with the amount of energy required to store a bit of information. There's this famous thing called the Landauer limit um, that is really a, seems to be an absolute limit to how little energy you can get away with to either create or erase a bit of information. And it's related to the, the environment, actually the temperature, of the environment. And that has implications for, um, even in quantum computing, it has implications for the future of our technology. There's a certain efficiency and a certain barrier that we'll meet in efficiency, even if we get better and better and better at, at flipping bits. So it's not a great answer to your question because, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up against some really deep and profound ideas that we don't have full answers for. Is it possible that the storage of the data ohm has to eventually become selective, meaning that you don't have enough information or, you know, you don't have enough energy to store as much information as you need to from the star that you're around? So eventually does, does data storage become such a task, such an energy intensive task that it could prevent us from doing things like colonizing the galaxy? It's a great question. And I think the simple answer is yes, it potentially could get to that point. We have a way to go, but even in parochial terms right now, although we're not, most of us are not fully aware of this, you know, the rate at which we're currently generating new information, uh, especially electronic stored information is such that uh, just to give you the, the sort of the, the big picture view of it every day today we generate more data than is represented by every word ever spoken by every human being who has ever lived <laughs> it's around 2.5 quintillion bytes of data a day and that takes energy if you look at the numbers this is, again, quite parochial, and we'll talk about the more cosmic picture in a moment. But if you look at the numbers right now, it suggests that although we're getting more efficient all the time, use of data or use of information is just expon growing exponentially. So sometime within the next 10 to 20 years, the energy demands of just data storage and processing technology is going to exceed the total electricity production capacity of our planet right now. So all the electricity we generate right now for everything, from industrial processes to charging your Tesla to, to everything, to our lights and so on, all of that would need to be applied just to keep data world going. So let's extrapolate that. 
right? That's just a parochial example. And hopefully we'll, we'll figure out some ways around some of that. There doesn't seem to be a, a limit to the thirst for information, thirst for data by our species. And I would argue that the data own itself, it's sort of Darwinian imperative is just to keep expanding, keep going. So it will coerce us somehow into helping it do that. Um, so yeah, there comes a point where, you know, if we're in our solar system or some other species around their parent star, they're going to run out of useful energy. They're going to run out of even all those photons coming out from their parent star. You know, they presumably still have to have use some of that just to run the rest of their civilization and to maintain temperate environments on a planet or on some structure that they've built to inhabit. Uh, the data is going to demand more and more of that. And so then, yeah, you have to look out into the universe. Maybe you go and build your cloud server you know, around Proxima Centauri. <laughs> or you start using other places in the universe um, to, to keep your information, to power your data ohm, your alien data ohm. So, that, you know, it actually raises all sorts of interesting questions. We tend to think of looking for alien civilizations either in one place or they've sort of spread everywhere. But maybe what it is, you get a nexus, which is the original biological component, the original species, and then their data servers scattered around the universe. And that's sort of interesting because you know, data servers are going to look different than an actual civilization inhabiting a, a star system. They're going to restructure matter slightly differently because their needs are different. They're very focused on just the energy. Could there be a scenario where biological life with its data ohm decides to go ahead and build a general AI to help them in managing the data ohm, and the general AI becomes a machine civilization and supplants the biological, said they go extinct, or the machine civilization is, is completely evil and, and causes their extinction, whatever, solely to preserve the data ohm. It's a really interesting question. And if I can unpack it a little bit, you know, one interesting aspect to that. So you mentioned a, you know, a general artificial intelligence. So something that is truly equivalent, or if not superseding, an intelligence like ours, like human intelligence. And of course, that's been the holy grail, or at least the stated holy grail for quite a long time of many computer scientists and others. And the interesting thing is just how difficult that's turned out to be. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not possible to do that and that it won't happen in the future. But there does seem to be something that we're not managing to do with machines, with, if you will, the restructuring of matter in machine form, in computers and so on. Something we're missing. And as advanced as our machine learning is getting and you know, we use the term artificial intelligence, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. I prefer to think of it as machine learning. Um, we're not quite getting that spark that a true artificial, sort of general artificial intelligence would have to have, one that we might build to, as you say, sort of take care of things on our behalf. And what's interesting about that is that it relates to a problem in computer science called the open-endedness problem. And that is that nobody has yet managed to, and we don't know how to produce 
a system or an algorithm that just keeps on generating new things, that generates novelty, that can not only solve a problem, but think of the next problem to solve. People have tried for many, many years to do this. They've created even artificial life simulations. There's a famous one called Tierra, which has Darwinian evolution built into it, but it always comes up short. It always kind of stops short of doing what life on earth does and what human intelligence does, which is just keep going forever and keep showing, uh, coming out with new forms, new, new ways of existing, new ideas and so on. So I wonder whether the real answer to the future and what happens to a species like us is a, is a further symbiosis with a data ohm, with some version of AI, but they've got to keep the fleshy bits around. Because <laughs> the one thing we do that it's not clear that other forms of, of semi-living things can do is produce novelty. We're little novelty engines. We just keep generating ideas and stuff endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. Um, so the solution to preserving data ohms, to preserving the, the information of a, of a species, maybe some kind of hybrid, some kind of symbiotic hybrid that keeps going forever. Um, so that even if you find an alien data ohm, and at first you don't really see any signs of the originators, if you look closely enough, you might find somewhere these little, these little blobs of maybe neurons or something that are serving that purpose, that providing that novelty, providing that ability for endless innovation that I think anything machine or otherwise needs or is going to need to maintain itself for a very long time in the universe. Do you envision that the first sign of intelligent alien life that we see in the universe, should we pick up a radio signal or, you know, something like that? Do you envision that it's more likely maybe to be a machine? Yeah, I, I do lean in that direction. Obviously, many other people have talked about this before, um, that you know, machine intelligence, or I, I actually think maybe even machine interfaces. So there's another interesting side to this, which would also argue for you know, that first contact or that first evidence to be with some kind of machine system, whether it's artificially intelligent or it's, it's more, or it's simpler, more, more sort of mechanical. You know, there's another side to this, which I've spent time thinking about, which is, you know, whether even for us, it would be safer that our quest to connect with other species out there, other minds, other intelligences, it would be safer to have kind of a, a, a barrier between us and that. And that barrier could be an algorithm. It could be an AI of some kind that AI is designed to be very careful about what it lets us know, because ideas are infectious. <laughs> and in fact, this is part of the concept of the data. You know, information, we know we can have things like memes, these infectious units of information that spread or viral, you know, your viral video or your viral statement, you know, that, that spreads around the world. You know, what happens if a species gets infected by a totally alien meme? 
that could be really bad for that species. And it could even be that other species out there have understood this and weaponized their, their memes, if you will. They weaponize the information that they send out into the universe in some way or the other, either the content of the information or what that information can do. That, you know, that information could take over something on earth that could take over matter in the same way that the you know, life is when information takes over matter so that's a long-winded way of saying that perhaps you know what we might contact or or detect would be some kind of um gatekeeper <laughs> to other species that it might be some kind of gatekeeper uh, algorithm or machine that whose purpose is to safeguard the species behind it. I mean, that also suggests to me that maybe we should be thinking about something like that. I mean, this is all pretty speculative, right? But it's kind of an interesting, interesting angle. Okay, so how, what does this look like? So if an alien civilization is sending out malicious information, is it just simply something like sending out a holy book, uh, <laughs> creating a religion, Glorcon the absolutely gorgeous, here's his holy book, follow it or could it be something much much worse in other words could they infect us our our technology with a computer virus of sorts i think either is a possibility i mean i love the idea of this yeah religious text or something like that that um i mean we know from our own history things like that have enormous power to to manipulate and and sort of sway people yeah it could be that or it could be something that Let's say there are deep underlying principles that will underlie any kind of computational system, no matter how it's constructed and what it's constructed out of. There could be similar principles underlying any kind of biological system involved in life, that there are going to be certain principles at play. And maybe the, the details differ from place to place, but the underlying sort of algorithmic themes are the same. If you figure that out, then yeah, you could design in principle some set of information that even if you transmit it, let's say you just transmit it using electromagnetic radiation in radio waves or laser pulses, that you figured out that 90% of the time, any species out there that gets it is going to have to process it using certain kinds of equipment, certain kinds of machinery, certain kinds of tools, and that you can then exploit that. You know, that's a backdoor into whatever's happening on this planet. It's sort of universal computer virus, if you will. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating idea. And the more one thinks about it, the more sort of plausible it seems. And just to add one last thing to that, I'm not sure it even needs to be terribly sophisticated information to cause, if, if this was your intention, to cause chaos somewhere else. You know, if you just are walking around in the forest that you've walked through for, for all your life and never seen anything, then suddenly one day there's a signpost there that says something like, we're coming to get you. That's going to change your life. <laughs> That's going to totally disrupt your life. Then you're going to go home and you're going to tell your friends and your family about this and they're going to get concerned and it's just going to it's going to snowball into something that alters and modifies your society and your life and in, in potentially a very detrimental fashion so even simple information has enormous power in other words the the very worst possible message 
you could decipher, presuming you could decipher it from a an alien radio signal and study is be quiet or they'll hear you. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I worry about that is is defensive techno signatures. So are you familiar with Shabilsky's star? You're going to have to explain it to me. <laughs> That's the one where they, th- some Russian scientists detected the presence of transuranic elements in it and okay. also really weird elements, which create questions about the island of stability and things like that. But the star seems to have plutonium in it, which Sagan and Shklovsky years ago said, if you see plutonium in a star, it might be artificially put there. But what does that say? It's I, as far as I can tell, if if it is an alien civilization rather than some weird peculiar star being bombarded by a neutron star or something like that, creating some weird weird physics going on. If it is an alien civilization, then they're saying we have very advanced nuclear technology and lots of bombs, and we can make plutonium with a star. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> Do you? Does it bother you that maybe the first techno signature we see is defensive? or offensive in nature? Ooh, yeah. I think... <laughs> so I think we tend to... People who are interested in SETI and technosuits and so on tend to veer towards, oh, look, why would you go to such effort to make yourself known one way or the other if, if you weren't interested in making contact? But certainly within our own species, you just have to look at our history and where we are today in the world to see that you know paranoia is a powerful thing. And if it comes down to a choice between absolutely preserving as we are, or things as they are, versus learning, potentially learning about life elsewhere in the universe, but also then opening yourself up to the unknown to potential threat, to potential, you know, infectious information and so on, you know, what choice are you going to make? I think you're going to take the very defensive choice, um, in which case, you know, you might consider announcing yourself, but doing it in such a way that it's, it's a proactive step towards fending everyone off, <laughs> as you say, telling people, you know, don't mess with us. Right? Don't, don't don't come near us. Don't send us anything because look, we've we've polluted our star with plutonium and you know, these other elements. We've we've shown our our capacity for extraordinary technology. So you know, I want to be the optimist that we live in some beautiful Star Trek universe where everyone would really like to talk and exchange ideas and culture and so on. But there's some part of me that thinks, well, nature is not really like that. Darwinian, the Darwinian struggle is is brutal, and perhaps we're misleading ourselves to think that that isn't true out there as well. And so maybe we have to be really cautious and think hard about this. I mean, it's so difficult though to take that really seriously. And certainly, as a scientist, you always want to know. You have curiosity, and you have in general optimism. But there's certainly a little voice in me that says, "Hmm, perhaps." <laughs> Perhaps we should be a lot more careful, which is where I think this idea of having a machine representative, some kind of machine shield could come in. It could allow you to explore the universe and to try to make those contacts, but basically have a protective barrier 
between us and whatever is out there in order to make some decisions. And that machine is a sort of sacrificial lamp. If it gets infected, it's okay. You've put in other safety measures that it can't, that infection can't get back to you. But then if it does get infected, you know something has happened. Yeah, these are, these are interesting ideas. Now, artificial intelligence, as we flirt with this and get better at it, creating artificial intelligence, we have noticed certain things. For example, if you create a system that can play a game, it tends to strategize differently than a human player would, which makes it very unpredictable. But also, <laughs> it doesn't have the confines of morality and ethics and things that we as humans do, or at least some of us humans. So it could be, it could have motives, an AI could have motives that are completely different than a human and unpredictable. And we've even seen AIs cheat at games. So does this bode poorly for the idea of civilizations, meaning that once they create an artificial intelligence, it kills them off and goes off and it's a complete sociopathic monster that <laughs> ravages the galaxy. Is this, is this, is this where we're going? <laughs> well, it would explain the great silence. <laughs> um, you know, I, it, it's hard to say. I think it, it's true that what we're seeing now, for example, Google's AlphaGo and AlphaZero, these out, um, AI systems that play play games and do that extraordinarily well. As you say, sometimes the way they win involves some strategy that we just can't understand. It's, it's outside of any strategy that humans have deployed over over even hundreds, if not thousands, of years in some of these these games. So the capacity of these systems to think well, think is a, a tricky word, but to, to function very differently than us, I think is clear. Now, motivation, yeah, that's an interesting question is, again, is motivation the right word or some sort of algorithmic driver that's somehow generated in these machines? If those algorithmic drivers get self-generated, then we might need to be concerned. And we move beyond the idea of the machine takes us too literally Right, there's the famous example of you know the machine Nick Bostrom, the philosopher, talking about the machine programmed to make paper clips, right, and it doesn't know when to stop, so it just turns everything into paper clips. <laughs> and we're back today. I'm joined with Dr. Caleb Scharf, author of Ascent of Information and an exploration of how data and our increasing reliance on data which we're totally reliant on data at this point is defining us as a civilization. So there have been paths that humanity could have gone down that were very malevolent, things like fascism, World War II and all of that, that could have redefined our data into something very malevolent. Now, do you think out there, there are civilizations that are absolutely malevolent and their data ohm is absolutely terrible negative and aggressive and conquering empires do you think that's a real risk uh for the milky way galaxy well i wonder i i think the question there is whether 
that kind of malevolence, that kind of behavior can be sustained for long periods. So here on Earth, we've seen the rise of a very malevolent, terrible, conquering empires again and again, but we've also seen them disappear again and again. And it's possible that that is not a long-term successful strategy. So that would mean then out in the out in the galaxy, out in the rest of the universe, then conceivably, sure, such things may arise now and then. But whether they can sustain themselves for terribly long is, is an open question. Especially, you know, there are, like it or not, the idea of, sort of into you know, galactic civilizations, galactic empires, and so on, are fundamentally different than the kinds of things that have happened on the Earth. And it's because of, I would say, causality. It's because of the finite speed of light. And this is something, of course, science fiction has dealt with for a long time. But let's assume that the speed of light is an absolute, and that there are no shortcuts around that, either in communication or in, in travel. And obviously everything that's happened on the earth, every empire and so on, especially over the last couple of centuries where we've, we've had um, faster communication uh, techniques, is strongly causally linked. Right? Everyone's aging at the same rate. Everyone, you can send messages comparatively quickly. I mean, even back in the day where you had to send a runner to send a message across you know, ancient Greece that was doable, wouldn't take that long. By the time you get up to galactic scales, even if you're super sophisticated, you can whiz between worlds at close to the speed of light, operating with a different dynamic. So I also wonder whether that in, inhibits this idea of these, these tight-knit galactic empires, these malevolent things sort of you know, trampling over, over species. It could happen. You could get outbreaks, I imagine. But whether it would, would sustain itself, I'm not sure. Now, of course, if you're on the receiving end of that, it doesn't matter if it isn't going to sustain itself for more than a few thousand years. It's still going to be a big, a big problem. But yeah, and I think just like on Earth in terrestrial biology, you get outbreaks of things. I mean, we obviously know about outbreaks of viruses, but you know, you also get sudden outbursts of certain species that proliferate for a while um, until that becomes untenable. And one would imagine that similar kinds of dynamics are going to be taking place out there, conceivably at the scale of species and civilizations as well. There may be moments of success and then moments of failure happening again and again. Now, you co-authored a paper with Jason Wright and Adam Frank about the propagation of a civilization throughout the galaxy, and it seems to happen very rapidly, like the spread of a virus. So say we develop the ability to colonize other stars. Say we dramatically extend the human lifespan so that we can go interstellar distances ourselves easily, or we do it with von Neumann probes or whatever. This process of spreading through the galaxy seems to happen very rapidly, right? Yeah, and that's really quite surprising. The piece of research you refer to with Jason Wright, Adam Frank, and Jonathan Carol Nellenbach, we did a full-blown computer simulation of what that might look like using more realism about our galaxy. So using the fact that stars in our galaxy are actually moving constantly. And so over time, 
you know, the opportunity to hop from star to star actually changes. And it turns out that that factor and just the, the nature of spreading through a galaxy where there are lots of places you can stop off at is extraordinarily efficient. Uh, although the caveat to that is when I say extraordinarily efficient, we're talking about a few million years to spread for a, a significant um, part, of, part of the galaxy. But in the grander scheme of things, that's nothing. That's a really short time scale. So that, yeah, that, that was quite a surprise. I mean, it reinforced earlier predictions and early ideas, and it goes all the way back to Enrico Fermi. I mean, Enrico Fermi, in his head, right, over that famous lunch back whenever it was, making his comment about where is everyone, had kind of seen that, kind of seen that, yeah, even if you're just traveling at some fraction of the speed of light, there's been enough time in the galaxy or enough places to stop off at that spreading is, is pretty crazily efficient, yes. What about intergalactic scales? Say you're an alien civilization that existed 100 million years before we did, and you're located in the Andromeda galaxy, which is careening towards us. Is it conceivable that there could be intergalactic spread of a civilization, or is it just simply a step too far? <laughs> well, uh, it kind of depends on how good your technology is. And the conditions of intergalactic space, which we probably know less about than the conditions in stellar space. In principle, you could scale this all up, but then you, you do face some, some serious challenges about, for example, our understanding of biological life. We might be able to engineer our biology, either with you know, gene therapy or other techniques to extend individual lifespans. Maybe we can come up with ways to suspend molecular changes in our, our bodies so that we can kind of switch ourselves off and switch ourselves back on 100,000 years later. So there may be some absolute limits to that as well. Um, it's, it's impossible, I think, just about impossible to fully shield biological entities from cosmic radiation. Cosmic radiation includes some extraordinarily high energy particles that wind up getting through pretty much all material you can think of. And if you're spending, let's say, 80 million years in transit from Andromeda to the Milky Way, there's probably going to be some unavoidable radiation damage and so on. So, yeah, it, it comes down to the limits of our knowledge of engineering, I think, more than anything, um, presuming one can set off from Andromeda at some decent fraction of the speed of light, then there's no reason why not sending something to another galaxy as long as you can preserve the thing that you send. Uh, so that's, you know, it's an interesting side to all of the discussion of interstellar travel and even going beyond that is, is this question of preserving the very things that you're sending. But in principle, you know, the relative distance between galaxies is much less than the relative distance between stars. So stars are very compact objects. And so you know, the distance between our sun and Proxima Centauri is huge compared to the size of the stars themselves or even the size of our planetary systems. For galaxies, it's a slightly different equation in as much as the size of the galaxies is not so much smaller than the average distance between the galaxies themselves. So if you got to that point, 
if you got to a point where you could confidently set off between galaxies, then in fact, I think we'd find that the efficiency of that spread would be equal, if not better, than the efficiency of spread within a single galaxy. So general relativity is our friend in this case. So we as humans, we live for 80-ish years, you know, we're not we're not very long lived. So when we look at interstellar dif- distances, we're like, well, we would have to build a generational ship or something to be able to go to Alpha Centauri ourselves. But this equation changes for a self-repairing machine, meaning that a von Neumann probe that can repair itself and if it gets into trouble and it, it's going to get vaporized, it can transmit its data to another von Neumann probe. This equation changes because it can uh, transmit its own personal data ohm and preserve it. So general relativity does allow for relativistic speeds that could, if you don't care about the passage of time, you can cross much of the observable universe within a human lifetime. So is it possible that intergalactic civilizations do that? They send out a robot that can repair itself indefinitely at, at relativistic speeds and end up in another galaxy relatively straightforwardly. Yeah, so relativity gives you some pretty neat <laughs> neat options. If you can push yourself up to velocity close to the speed of light, you, if you, a massive object, you can never actually attain speed of light. But even if you just accelerate at one G, right? One Earth acceleration. If that's your rate of acceleration in a craft and you just keep it switched on for long enough, then actually from your perspective, it, it doesn't take that long to get anywhere. Yeah, as you, as you approach the speed of light, the, the relativistic time dilation becomes more and more extreme kind of exponential curve. And so all around you, anyone who's not traveling at that that relative speed is going to experience, you know, ages. You are not going to experience much time passing at all. And even just accelerating at 1G, from your perspective, within a, a, a human lifetime, I've forgotten the exact figure, you can get an awful long wait. As long as you can stop again at the other end, and that's also a question of how to decelerate efficiently, how to accelerate efficiently and decelerate efficiently. But yeah, time dilation is your friend. Right? If you if you don't care about what you're leaving behind or what might happen in the interim as you go to some new place, yeah, you can get everywhere basically within a, a relatively small amount of time. So if you have a machine civilization that doesn't care about time, it can keep its data ohm going indefinitely forever through propagation of information amongst itself, then they may simply conclude that these limitations of general relativity and time are just a fact of life. It's just how the universe is, and they send out the probes anyway, and knowing that they might might not hear back from it in 100 million years, right? Yeah, I think if you allow that possibility for sort of eternal machines, effectively, and it's an interesting question of whether whether that is truly possible. But if if you and I'll come back to that in a moment. But if you could have these eternal, effectively eternal machines, and for whatever reason they wanted to spread themselves or versions of themselves out into the universe, it's totally doable. It's kind of a, a interesting and peculiar 
sort of network or web that gets constructed again because of causal limits. So yes, I can send a probe 20,000 light years away and eventually I'll hear from that probe when it arrives and I can get information and I can modify my data home, I can modify myself based on that information, but I'm going to have to wait whatever amount of time for that to come back. It's probably going to be of the order of 40,000 years at least to get that information back. But yeah, if, if you're an eternal thing, that doesn't matter so much. And that actually, there's a beautiful, very famous paper written by Freeman Dyson, who many people will have heard of. He was a very brilliant physicist, mathematician and thinker. And he wrote a rather beautiful paper in 1979 called Time Without End. And he discusses in very general terms, the possibilities for life going on into the future of the universe. And he defines something that I think is very interesting. It relates directly to this idea of machines that can kind of switch things on and off and do what they want. He, he uses this concept of subjective time. And his point is that you don't really care how much actual time passes between your thoughts all you care about is a continuity. So I sit here thinking and I feel like I'm having thoughts that are contiguous. They come up one after another. We're having this conversation. It all sort of floats. But you know, what's to say there aren't a million years between each spoken word or each thought? His point being, you could arrange that. And certainly if you're a machine, you could engineer that so that your conception of the world remains just sort of ordinary. But endless amounts of time are passing between individual thoughts or individual actions, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful idea. He was thinking about perhaps biological life, but it actually would apply here, in which case part of the conclusion of his work that you is that you could carry on essentially indefinitely, that you could alter your duty cycle of thought so that maybe there's more and more absolute time between thought as time goes on, and maybe there's less available energy for you in the universe. But from your perspective, it doesn't matter. So he made an argument, and it, it doesn't quite apply in the way he thought, because our understanding of the nature of the universe has changed a bit. But he made an argument for how stuff could continue forever, uh, literally to infinity. Wouldn't it make sense for a civilization that's advanced enough to do it, whether biological or machine, to slow the perception of time and doing that, you also extend your your perceived time in the universe before the universe goes black. So it seems that maybe, you know, stretching the perception of time might be something alien civilizations and we might eventually do. Now, the problem here is that when you do that, you sort of defeat the, or either extend or shorten, depending on what you do, the speed of light problem. So if you think much faster, you know, and you speed up time or your perception of it, then you can talk to basically alien civilizations with radio telescopes. And it's not that much of a time difference between the communications because everything is altered. Do you think that civilizations and aliens may work on time scales or perceived time scales way different than what we see as human beings right now? It's a great question. 
I could see that as one strategy to maintain sort of cohesion across interstellar distances, right? That you you kind of switch your brains on and off in between while you're waiting. So you you kind of get rid of that that inevitable light travel delay uh, just because it makes things easier. The challenge to that, I think, and this actually comes back to the last point we discussed, the universe keeps ticking, right? And so let's say I inhabit a bunch of worlds around some nice star and I'm engaged in this kind of uh, sort of interstellar community, as you as you described, where I'm I'm talking to others, I'm sending out probes, I'm I'm but I'm kind of turning my consciousness on and off so that you know for me it's all sort of seemingly happening in real time. The star that you're orbiting is going to keep evolving. I mean, okay, maybe you wind up trying to engineer that, but you know, as far, right now the level of technology to have this sort of extended community across interstellar space wouldn't necessarily extend to engineering stellar fusion. So there are issues that you're going to have to deal with, which are to do with the fact the universe keeps ticking. And not only is it just the star that I'm around, that star is in orbit in our galaxy, as it would be in any galaxy. It's moving. There may be close encounters with other stars. There's a lot of complicated stuff that keeps on going, no matter how I play with or, or tweak my sense of continuity, my, my sort of get around, work around for um, the finite speed of light. So I kind of wonder whether that's a problem that you set all of this up and, oh, by the way, our star is about to go supernova. <laughs> so you're going to have to move and you're going to, so perhaps you would do that. But it's not, yeah, it's not totally straightforward. The universe keeps on ticking until you get to the point that you could engineer stars, engineer galaxies, engineer even beyond that, then you're always going to have to be pretty nimble and kind of bring yourself back from this kind of weird form of existence where you've kind of sidestepped some of the issues of causality. Now, my last question for you today, Caleb, is what is the future of the human data ohm? Do you, we love to send out information and hope aliens will see it. We've sent out Voyager records. We've sent out Arecibo signals. We've sent out a bunch of people's names encoded on CDs to Mars, things like that. We love to send out information, we ourselves. So do you think that the, the ultimate legacy of human civilization will be to send out our data ohm somehow before we go extinct as a a sort of a, a testament to what we were sort of like the the star trek episode where somebody re, captain picard relives aliens life it was called the inner light so is that our destiny meaning that when when this planet becomes uninhabitable or something like that and, and humanity leaves the stage Will we send out our data ohm into the universe and that will be our legacy to future alien civilizations within the Milky Way? It's a beautiful idea. I think that could well be an endpoint. And one aspect of that that is so interesting, because we might say, well, you know, exactly, you know, are we really going to send all of our cat videos to, you know, as our legacy into the universe? But what's so interesting about the data ohm, aside from a sort of day-to-day -day experience with it, with Facebook and Twitter and social media and all of that kind of data. 
what we are doing over time and what science is doing over time is encoding more and more about the biological world into the data. When we sequence genes, when we sequence the genetic code of other organisms, and that's something we do all the time. We've sequenced the human genome. We sequence the genome of many, many other organisms around us. We're sequencing genomes of now extinct animals like the, the woolly mammoth. And we're trying to do that with ever greater fidelity, pushing back into the past. So the extraordinary thing is we're actually continually sort of uploading, even though we don't think about this and it sort of feels like it's a very future thing, this idea of transcendence into some new form, we're constantly uploading at least the informational parts of 4 billion years of biological evolution on this planet. And at some point, conceivably, we might finish doing that along with all the cat videos and everything else. And at that point, yes, I would say that what else is there to do if you are coming to an end, perhaps, as a species, as a civilization? What else is there to do but to send that out into the universe? It's not just a record of you. It's a record of the entire experiment of life on this one planet. And maybe somewhere else, some machine-driven data um, will take that and reconstruct it. Or it could reconstruct it. It could rebuild based off of that. And there might be that, that sense that this is our last chance, right? Last chance to reproduce what has happened here would be to send the data home out into the universe. Even if it were an alien version of a cat video, it would be the most interesting thing that's <laughs> happened to us as a species since our, our since we arose on this planet. So even an alien cat video would have us fixated, especially the scientists. So Caleb, we are out of time and it was great to talk to you today. I hope you come back soon and everybody should check out Cable Sharp's book, The Ascent of Information. It's becoming something that's increasingly important in the world in which we live, information. Dr. Keating, I'm organizing my worthwhile literature files. What is the exact title of your new book i'm glad you like it it's called into the impossible think like a nobel prize winner lessons from laureates to stoke curiosity spur collaboration and ignite imagination in your life and career it's near the top of the list great where do john's books rank well they're certainly on a list but I'd rather not say which one. Where is John, anyway? Probably watching cat videos with the opossum. That's what they do in the afternoons. Brian, have you ever thought about hosting a third podcast? I've thought of hosting maybe a third podcast, but with Into the Impossible and with Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, my two podcasts, I think that's well enough, Anna, but... Why do you ask? Oh, no reason. No reason at all. <laughs>